0: From WUFTFM, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy you could tune in today on this, what, December 2nd, this Friday, December 2nd, when I'm happy to welcome back to the program, it's been a while, from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Rob Ossoboff, and we're going to be talking today about invasive species, that is to say, some of the species in Florida that do not belong here and potentially can cause a great deal of harm. Stay tuned. Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals, I'm Dan Hill, I'm so glad you could tune in here on this Friday, December 2nd, 2022, when my guest here in the studio with me is Dr. Robert Osaboff, and we're going to be talking today about species that do not belong here in North Central Florida or in other places in Florida either, and yet are here, and what the consequences of that can be. And we're going to learn about the dangers that invasive species pose to our own native species. And uh, perhaps even us, too. I don't know. We'll find out. Well, let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Asuboff. I'm glad that you could be here. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks, Dana.
0: We know that Florida is home to species that, in many instances, are unique to Florida, at least here in the United States. Uh, But Florida can also be home to species that do not belong here. And when we have these invasive species uh there can be consequences um, especially for maybe our native species and and uh and that's not good so when we talk about invasive species in florida what are what are some of the the major culprits right now
1: so um florida is really unique in the you know the continental united states in that um we have a very high percentage of invasive species and that's particularly true um for fish, um, reptiles and amphibians. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the, m- one of my focuses is reptile and amphibian disease. So I'll focus more on the, the reptile and amphibian and invasive species that we have in Florida that are problematic. And, um, some of them are more of an issue in Southern Florida. So obviously the one that most people have probably thought of are the invasive Burmese pythons, um, which are present throughout the Everglades. Um, we also have, uh, Problems with invasive green iguanas down in South Florida, red-headed agamas are becoming more of an issue. Um, But to be honest, the more and more um, biologists look, the more invasive species that can be found uh, in South Florida. Um, But the problem isn't limited to just South Florida. Um, We have invasive species that have spread throughout many parts of the state. Um, You know, here in Central Florida, um, two commonly encountered species that people may see on a routine basis, or at least in the warmer months, are the brown anoles that you see running all over different parts of Gainesville uh, and the Cuban tree frogs, you know, the, the really big tree frogs that we get. Both of those species are actually introduced species to Florida. Um, the brown anoles have been around for probably about 100 years and have been slowly moving north in the state. Uh, and the Cuban tree frogs have been around for quite a while as well um, and also are moving north um, and displacing uh, quite a bit of our native species.
0: All right, so there's a lot to talk about here. Let's just begin with a question about what makes Florida unusual in the number of invasive species. To what can we attribute the sheer number of invasive species versus, say, some other states? Is it the warmer weather?
1: So the warmer weather definitely plays uh, an important role. Um, you know, when you have year long warmer conditions, um, that is going to make the uh, Area a much more prime location for invasion by um, species from more tropical areas, um, and so uh, in Florida we have a lot of those conditions. And again, the invasives aren't limited to just reptiles and amphibians. We have huge issues with invasive fish species as well. And and yes, a lot of that is is due to the the warmer weather. But I think the other thing that is unique to Florida that makes it um, a really a hot spot for invasive species is. Um, in Miami, um, through Florida, uh, we have a very high uh, high number of animals that are being imported into the United States through the airports in Miami. So there are a couple of large um, large import areas um, in the United States. Uh, Miami's one, New York is one, Los Angeles is another. Uh, And when you think about those other places, they don't always have the ideal environment for those animals to uh, really persist. Uh, And Florida does. And so um, animals are imported into the United States in extremely high numbers. Um, that's something that maybe a lot of people don't, uh, think about or don't know. Um, and they're imported for a number of different reasons. You know, there's uh, food animal import, you know, for, for eating, we export a lot of animals to be eaten. Um, but we also, uh, import a lot of animals into Florida for the pet trade. Um, and so a lot of those are reptiles and amphibians and, um, because of that we have a high density of reptile and amphibian businesses in Florida. Um, and there's a lot of reptiles and amphibians kept as pets. Um, and, uh, Pet ownership um, is really, really important when it's done responsibly. Um, I think it fosters an appreciation for reptiles and amphibians, um, which often kind of get overlooked when you think about animals. You know, fuzzy, uh, furry dogs and and birds—they get a lot of attention. A lot of people like them, but there's a lot of people who are just kind of scared of reptiles and amphibians. So, keeping reptiles and amphibians as pets um, can help foster appreciation for those species in younger generations, but it needs to be done responsibly. And unfortunately a lot of animals have been released into the wild in Florida, um, at different times, either by individuals who can no longer maintain the animals as pets, or they no longer wish to maintain those animals as pets. Um, or there's also been environmental issues. So back in the early nineties, when hurricane Andrew came in and hit Southern Florida, um, there were damage to a large number of reptile warehouses where animals were being held, uh, Temporarily, before they were moved out to other areas for the pet trade, uh, and the destruction of those facilities led to the release of the animals out into the wild. And that's actually one of the hypotheses of how uh, the Burmese pythons were first introduced into the Everglades in South Florida.
0: Okay, so <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, I want to just play. Um, I'm going to play. Uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, the skeptic, and ask. Why it is that if some uh, folks want to have reptiles as pets, um, if we know now that some of them, certainly not all of them, some of them are going to be irresponsible and are going to release animals into the wild rather than finding another home, why is it that we... As say a state, do not crack down on the sale of exotic wildlife, uh, particularly species with a really high potential for becoming invasive.
1: Um, that's a really good question. And I, I think that's a really important point for discussion. Um, there have been a lot of efforts, um, by the state to restrict the sales of certain species of reptiles. Um, and for certain species of reptiles, um, particularly those that are sold, um, in areas that are at highest risk for potential invasion, um, and for species that are most likely to potentially invade and cause, you know, deleterious effects on the ecosystem, um, those those measures for for a large part have been passed. So you can't buy, uh, you can no longer buy many different iguana species in the state of Florida. You can no longer buy large constricting snakes in this uh, state of Florida. Um, and so there, there are those efforts. Um, I think that one of the challenges with that type of legislation is that there's never a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and animals that um, Maybe kept, say, here in North Central Florida, likely would never be able to establish themselves as much as, say, areas in South Florida. And again, you know, it, I think it's really important for the overall safety and health of reptiles and amphibians if there is a better understanding of those species by the public. Uh, one of the things that's really commonly overlooked when, when these types of discussions happen is that we have to remember that there are similar, um, if not even sometimes larger scale negative effects of keeping some of our domestic animals as pets, cats in particular. you know They, they have significant effects on wild mammal populations, wild bird populations. So unfortunately, um, and this is sometimes it's a philosophical thing you have to deal with as a veterinarian. There are pros and cons um to the maintaining of animals in captivity as it relates to the health of our wildlife.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I was once in South Florida, and I got taken sort of on a behind-the-scenes tour of a, a kind of a wildlife rehabilitation sanctuary. This was a kind of place where, you know, maybe a tiger that had once been (laughs) a pet of, I don't know, some ludicrous celebrity who just felt like he needed to have a tiger on a leash or something. Well, these kinds of animals ended up at this place. And I remember going into a building where in five-gallon buckets, not dissimilar to ones that you might buy paint in, there were different snakes, I noted that they were not native to Florida. I mean, these were cobras and, you know, I don't know, mambas or just snakes that should should they be in the wild would be a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, And granted, like, I don't think that this place had any intention of introducing them into the wild. And yet what it told me was that somebody in Florida had these snakes and they ended up in this place. And so... You know, how does one create, and I realize we're maybe ahead of ourselves in our conversation today, but how how would would one encourage more responsible handling of animals for which the escape into the wild in Florida would potentially create tremendous trouble?
1: Yeah, that is a... um... You know, I think that's really the the crux of the issue is how how can we promote that responsibility? And um, you know, I think ultimately it all comes down to education, right? And so, people need to realize um, that you know these are. These are animals, too. You know, you can't keep a snake in a five-gallon bucket. It's not It's not fair to the animal. So, you know, we, we need to educate people on what animals may be appropriate to keep as pets if they would like a pet reptile. How should they appropriately keep them? Um, and then we need to have good education about what to do inevitably if you no longer are able to or you no longer are interested in keeping that reptile. And so we do have... Established mechanisms in that for dogs and cats, for the most part, you can take them to a shelter. But many shelters um, are very hesitant to take reptiles and amphibians in, uh, fish as well. Um, you know, so your options are well, you can try and take it to your local reptile or fish shop and see if they're willing to take it. And sometimes they resell them, or the path of least resistance is to to release them out into the wild. And so you're, you are completely right. We need to do better education of the people that are purchasing these animals um, and really let them know how significant the issue could be if they're released out into the wild and cause issue. And you know uh, what the state has been doing in many ways to try and limit the most inju- potentially injurious species for routine sale with more permitting and vetting of those owners who do wish to to keep those species. Right,
0: a great point. And and here I'll confess that I am ignorant of the the rules and the laws and so forth. Uh, However, if I was just to, you know, just talking off the top of my head, in spite of, I think, the very important work that can be done when people are exposed to species that might provoke fear out of ignorance, I would say that there's probably little to be gained by someone keeping a cobra as a pet, um, you know, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I, it, there are. I mean, there are benefits to people who keep cobras, believe it or not. Um, many of the people who are, or there are not many people in the state of Florida who keep venomous animals, and that is appropriate. There's a, you need lots of permits, you need lots of, you know, inspections. But um, some of those people who do keep those animals um, use them to produce. Um, or use them and milk the venom from those animals for the production of anti-venin and things that are very medically important um, and can be produced and then shipped all over the country.
0: Yeah. I'm just (laughs) talking in terms of just general civilians. Like I I wouldn't want my neighbor to have some cobras (laughs) in his house. Um, So when we, when we, when we have these kinds of species that have managed to get loose somehow in Florida and, you know, with fish, I, I realize we're not going to talk too much about fish today, but but fish, I, I don't know. What can you do to stop, say, saltwater fish from just making their way here? Um, I don't know. But freshwater fish, I imagine in some cases have been introduced um, inappropriately, and, and there you go. Uh, but others probably have been introduced through accident of agriculture and and trade like that? I mean, especially ones going back, say, you know, 100 years or more. You mentioned the Brown and Knowles. Yeah. Is there understanding of how they originally arrived?
1: Uh, it's they likely came here um, you know with other cargo and other, other things hitch a ride you know it is not uncommon for people up north to be purchasing plants or things from Florida having them shipped up there and they arrive with an anole in them or they arrive with a frog in them so you know with the kind of the global movement of of goods and services in short amount of time that's what's really ra- ratcheted up the invasive species issue is that those animals do get spread all over rapidly and it, it's been going on for you know at least a hundred years, and and both the brown anole and the Cuban tree frog are good examples of those.
0: All right, so when we're talking about anoles, is there a native anole in Florida?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the native anole to the eastern half, the southeastern U.S. is the green anole or the Anolis carolinensis, and. Um, you know, they're really striking animals. You probably have seen one. Uh, if you go out to Sweetwater, La Chua Trail, you'll often find them just kind of crawling along the boardwalk. Um, bright green. Um, they can be a little duller sometimes. And then they've got that really bright orange gular throat sac. And so they extend their gular skin and it becomes really bright green. Um, and they are who, that's the anole that should be here on the, you know, in Florida. Um, but if you've been in Florida for a while, and I, unfortunately I haven't, I've only been here about five years, but um, if you've been in Florida a while, you may have noticed that the number of green anoles, depending on where you're located, has gone down, or at least appears to have gone down, and the number of brown anoles seems to have increased, Um, and so that's because the brown anoles are making their way uh, through the state. They're extending north, and the green anoles... um, Initially, it was believed that the population numbers of the green anoles were decreasing, um, but recent studies have showed that they've actually changed the way that they, or the area of the landscape that they're inhabiting, and they're starting to move up a little more vertically. Not a ton, but you know, there's several more feet in the air than the brown anoles, and they're kind of establishing a, a slightly new area. Um, so they may actually be coexisting in some capacity, but there probably are many deleterious effects of the, the incredible number of brown anoles that we have.
0: All right. So these annuls are different enough that they do not mate? They do not. Okay. Uh, and, and anybody listening right now will know these brown annuls. And I never even thought of them as uh, particularly unwelcome since know, they seem peaceful enough. Um, and they're all around. But I can recall when I did not see them uh, in this part of the state. And now... Uh, they're pretty much everywhere in Gainesville. You see them all over the place. Well, what what are some of the negative consequences that these Uh, brown anoles can have other than potentially like eating some of the food that the green anoles might consume?
1: So this is where, um, you know, looking at invasive species from the viewpoint of a veterinarian provides a slightly different focus. So if you think of an invasive species, a lot of times we think about the habitat that they will invade and occupy and the food items that they may eat, as you mentioned. But um, you don't often think about the diseases that may be carried by these invasive species and what potential risk risk may be posed to then the native species. Um, There was a a couple of years ago we had, uh, you mentioned earlier, St. Petersburg. We received some reports um, that were that were shared with us from with FWC of brown anoles in the St. Petersburg area that had these very weird swellings on them. Um, And we looked at them, we we examined them, we did a lot of work, and we found out that those swellings were due to a bacteria um, that prior to the identification in St. Petersburg, Florida, had only ever been described on a tiny island in the Indian Ocean called Christmas Island. Um, And this bacteria was there and causing reptile populations to decline in the Indian Ocean. And lo and behold, we have it in the western coast of Florida as well. Um, That bacteria or a relative of that bacteria had actually been reported to cause disease in green anoles, fatal disease in green anoles. So now we have an invasive species in the brown anole that is able to carry a fatal bacterial infection that could potentially spill over into our native species like the green anole that we know aren't doing as well as they could be.
0: Okay, so that sounds terrible because these green anoles were no fault of their own, now now have uh, kind of rivals in their midst. And, and these green anoles that on their own might never have been exposed to this bacteria you're describing ha- are potentially at risk. With something that seems as rare as what you're describing, how can veterinarians and other folks who study infectious disease work to mitigate the negative effects of these kinds of diseases?
1: Um, I think, you know, the mitigation is always challenging. The, The ideal mitigation for any invasive infectious disease is to present prevent its arrival. and so that's step one. once it gets to introduced into an area, um, you in, you need to try and control it. Um, and but to do that you need to understand a little bit about the disease itself. So the very first steps in understanding the diseases of wildlife is you know appropriate surveillance, appropriate um, main monitoring of native and invasive species by biologists. And when something appears a little bit off, is the submission of those animals for examination. And so I do a lot of, of necropsies, which are animal autopsies, where we, we determine why an animal is sick or we determine why an animal died. Um, and the reason that I actually got into doing pathology, which is the study uh, of disease tissue was so that I could better understand reptile and amphibian disease for conservation purposes. So that's really important is that when people see something that seems just a little bit funny is that they contact Florida Fish and Wildlife or they contact um, their local wildlife veterinarian or biologist and let them know about it because that's that's how we can first identify these diseases that may have really significant implications on the wildlife.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a, a great thing to note. And so this is where public education can come into play, because uh, the the better and the sooner we understand these kinds of processes, the less damage they can potentially do. Well, Dr. Ossoboff, let's take a break right here. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on wuft My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Robert Ossoboff, and we're talking about invasive species. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned welcome back to animal airwaves live on wuftfm this is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals Dana hill My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Robert Osipoff, and we're talking about invasive species today. And Dr. Osipoff, one of the invasive species that I have spotted even in my own yard, besides the brown anole, is the Cuban tree frog. And, And can we talk a little bit about what this animal is, how it got here?
1: Sure. So, um, Similar to the brown and old, the Cuban tree frog is from the the Cuba and and the surrounding islands and was introduced into southern Florida um, again probably roughly about a hundred years ago or so and has made its way north. And so now um, odds are in Gainesville area, if you See a bigger type frog hiding inside, uh, you know, hiding inside your wind chimes on your porch or up underneath a windowsill, um, there's a really good chance that it's a Cuban tree frog. They get, you know, a fair bit larger than um, our native uh, tree frog species. Um, And uh, they are problematic for a number of reasons. Um, They do get quite large, um, so they actually can eat a fair number of other frog species. Um, And so they also occupy occupy a lot of the habitat that some of our native frog species uh, occupy. Um, But as we mentioned for the brown anoles, they also can serve as vectors for different diseases um, that may impact either animal health or human health.
0: Can you explain what a disease vector is? Yes. So a
1: disease vector um, is a uh, reservoir uh, where a potential pathogen, whether it be a virus or a parasite or a bacterium, um, can exist, um, and it doesn't really cause much significant disease in that individual animal, but they can transmit that pathogen to another species that could potentially be
0: infected by it. And this seems alarming to me because that means that something like a Cuban tree frog might potentially be carrying diseases that could harm what other frogs or other species, this disease might not harm the Cuban tree frog, <laughs> so you've got an essentially, you know, um, you've got this this animal that's doing harm just by being here and, you know, being large and maybe eating other frogs and taking up habitat and so forth, but also can be carrying disease and yet not succumb to that disease, so it doesn't seem to have the same kinds of... Um, vulnerabilities yeah and and that's alarming because what if some of the diseases it's carrying make more vulnerable the native species of frogs
1: Exactly. We did a, um, there is, and we chatted about this the last time I was on a few years ago, um, but there's a very important fungus that kills frogs globally. Um, it's uh, a, it's commonly referred to as Kitchard fungus. Um, and um, it's been around for uh, quite a while and causing disease issues in frogs across the globe for at least the last 20 years. Um, but about, A little less than 10 years ago, there is a new fungus of amphibians that was discovered. And this fungus seems to target salamanders much more than it targets frogs. Um, And it is not yet detected in the United States. Um, If it were to get released here, we would be very, very worried that we would have Incredible die-offs of salamanders in the eastern half of the United States. Many people probably don't know this, but the eastern half of the United States has the highest salamander biodiversity in the entire world. Um, it's mostly along the Appalachian Mountains. But if that this new fungus, which is um, called Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans, and the salamandravorans part stands for salamander eater. And that is how bad this fungus is. If this fungus were to get into North America, it would have likely have devastating consequences on our native salamanders. So because of the goal of keeping that fungus out of North America, there has been legislation introduced that limits the importation of many different salamanders into the U.S. And so the goal is to try and prevent the fungus from getting into the United States. Um, in collaboration with uh, other researchers at the University of Tennessee, we started to look at what potential role this salamander-eating fungus could have if it were to infect certain frog species. And we used Cuban tree frogs as a model because they're an invasive species, they're they're easy to acquire, and you're not doing anything negative to the environment if you're using an invasive species as an animal model. You're actually helping a little by taking small numbers of animals away. Um, And we were actually very surprised to find that this salamander-eating fungus could infect the Cuban tree frogs. And that was something that we hadn't seen in many other different frog species. And so now it changes the dynamic and it changes the potential of the introduction of this fungus into North America. Now we need to start to worry about can it come in on certain frog species because the legislation's only restricted the movement of salamanders. But I think more concerning is Species like the Cuban tree frog can, again, serve as reservoirs of these really bad diseases that then could spill over and cause really negative effects on our native species. And so that they are, you know, it's really important. Um, and we did, a, we did a different study looking at Cuban tree frogs um, a couple of years ago, looking at the parasites of Cuban tree frogs, and we actually identified a very important human parasite, or a parasite that can cause significant human disease, um, in those frogs. And it had never been documented in a frog before. Um, and we know that this is a parasite that's becoming more and more established in Florida. It is called the, it's a rat lungworm um, that can actually get into um, the brains of people and cause pretty significant disease. Um, and so we now know that Cuban tree frogs can and do harbor that parasite in the wild in Florida.
0: Okay, so I we have had an episode of this program before about rat lungworm, and I'm only sort of chuckling because it's been given s- such a terrible name. Everything <laughs> about that name is bad. Um, and uh, it should be bad because the effects of this uh, disease are, 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 are very negative. However, um, you know, n- not that we needed any more reason to uh, make less welcome these Cuban tree frogs, I still feel like, I wonder whether or not there the number of diseases that you're finding in some of these invasive species, is it possible that the methods of discovering infectious diseases in these animals has gotten more sensitive so that you're finding them more? Or are the disease, are the numbers of infectious diseases just increasing?
1: It's a little bit of both. Um, we are um, much more adept at characterizing the agents that cause disease than we were 20 years ago. Um, and so we absolutely are better at detecting and describing the disease agents than we used to be. Um, however, when we started off the show, we talked a little bit about that global movement of goods and and animals and food um, and people. And when you move all of those things, diseases follow. And so that's, uh, I I don't like to bring it back up. It's still way too in the recent past. But when we think about COVID, that rapidly moved from continent to continent because people were moving from continent to continent on airplanes within a matter of hours. That same thing is happening with many, many different types of diseases of many things, of plants, of animals, of people. Uh, You know, there, there are we are, you know, it is is a bit concerning how quickly things can move um, and the shift we've seen in infectious disease dynamics towards the increasing diversity of diseases we're seeing and where those diseases are being
0: found. Yeah. So getting back to this disease that, you know, could decimate the salamander population, if it were to... Just be kind of in the environment here in the United States, as you say, it, it would be uh, potentially catastrophic. It sounds like though you have you have studied this particular disease. That well, what kind of biosecurity methods do you employ to make sure that it stays out of the environment?
1: Yeah, so that's um, very important. So the uh, one of the the good things that is um, that has been done with this particular fungus is. Um, it's very limited who can actually do research with the fungus. So, um, any labs that do research with the fungus um, uh, don't, you know, they have to sign off, and, it, and so there's keeping track of where the fungus is. Um, And then anytime you do any sort of research with an infectious disease, there are very strict protocols that we follow in the laboratory um, to prevent any sort of release of material out into the environment, appropriate disinfection uh, of any biologic materials, um, and, you know, appropriate disposal of everything that's involved with. There's, you know, when you think about disease research, that is all happening at, you know, in, at the university level or at the industry level. Um, it it would blow your minds to to realize what diseases are being studied where, um, and the it's it's fantastic because the biosecurity protocols are so strict and they're so well regulated. We don't see these things normally getting out. So um, it is you know. I don't expect there to be an issue with the release of this salamander-eating fungus because of a, a research institution, um, but the the work that we do show says that, you know, we have to worry about it coming from many other different places Yeah, as well. so
0: if I could ask you to make a kind of uh, speculative guess, if that fungus were to make its way here, how would you see it happening?
1: If the fungus were to make its way to North America, it most likely would be via the pet trade. Um, It would be from either um, salamanders um, or potentially frogs um, shipped from um, either um, areas where the fungus has become established, which includes Southeast Asia and or parts of Europe, um, or uh, where the fungus had been introduced in captivity, Um, and then infected animals in a collection and then were moved to different places. And then once it was in that region where it could flourish in a captive situation, then either animals with the fungus or any sort of organic material that wasn't appropriately sanitized could then get released out and then become an issue in the environment.
0: So if we... If we believe that that's the case, that that's how it m- might happen in the most likely scenario, is it possible that the risks of the pet trade outweigh the benefits of the pet trade?
1: That is a, a very good argument uh, and a very important discussion to have. And um, I think one of the challenges... Will always be um, there, and you sh- you need to. We actually need to think about the pet trade as an industry because there is a lot of money behind it. There is a lot a lot of people who have you know invested their lives into this industry. Um, there are many different industries we could think of that are ve- very deleterious to either human health, animal health, and and so yes, I think that there it is likely that the pet trade as it stands now is more deleterious to the environment than the benefits are to of having the pet trade. Um, But it's unlikely to be able to be completely shut down. Uh, I don't think again, there's a there are a lot of proponents of the industry. There's a lot of power behind it now in certain areas. Um, And I think it's much more realistic um, to kind of come to a compromise solution where uh, we promote, again, responsible pet ownership, responsible um, pet maintenance, um, and uh, ca- decrease the risks associated with keeping those animals in
0: captivity? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if it's possible to have intense screening processes, right? if these if these animals are coming from, say, the other side of the globe, is there any inspection that could take place that would identify, Infectious disease that might spread to animals that have never been exposed to it before and potentially could be quite vulnerable.
1: Yes. Um, And, you know, that's so I, um, and as part of my interest in this, I serve on several uh, national committees um, trying to prevent the introduction of this salamander eating fungus into North America. And one of the suggestions is to do just that, is to swab animals, test their skin for the presence of these fungi, uh, and then make a a decision about what to do with them. Um, Logistically, that is extremely challenging, given the number of animals that are being brought in, um, and then the few places that actually have the capacity to do that type of testing. Um, And the challenge also is, is that a lot of times the diseases that are the most problematic are the ones that we didn't know about before. So, and we are not at a place with disease testing technology where we can test every single animal for everything out there and get, you know, a reliable answer. Yeah,
0: I, I get that. And if the technology isn't there, then it's just not there. But as for the, you know, the resources involved, well, the 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 skeptic might uh, say, well, uh, if that's the case then perhaps the industry that stands to profit from this might bear the cost of these inspections were they possible with technology. All right, uh, Dr. Ossoboff, let's take one more break. Yep. And then we've still got a lot more to talk about because I do want to talk about the python. So I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Robert Ossoboff. And we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned, please. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. I'm Danny Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Robert Ossoboff, and we're talking about invasive species and the risks that they compose to our own native species here in Florida. And Dr. Ossoboff, we'd be real remiss to not discuss, at least at some length, the python problem that we have in South Florida. And this one, it's pretty easy to understand how this happened. And and allow me to kind of speculate here. This this has been my assumption that pythons, which are not native to, to Florida, they have been pets of some people, right? But they also get quite large. And as you alluded to earlier, well, with some of these kinds of species, this isn't just, you know, you can take it down to your county animal services. This is, well, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to let it go, because you don't want to, I don't know, kill it, and, you know? And so you let it go out in the environment, and you think, of, oh, well, it's just one. It's just one python. What harm can it do? But I guess that python found a friend, and now there are probably pythons that are actually breeding in places like the Everglades, am I am I kind of onto it? How this has come to pass?
1: Yeah, for the most part, the the initial uh, event of release usually requires multiple individuals for it to be successful. Um, and so, um, sometimes the individual pets um, released can find uh, other animals, but a lot of times it's kind of a, a, a Mass release of animals out at once, um, and yes, but they are—they certainly have been released, um, probably by a couple of different mechanisms, and are very uh, clearly now established in southern Florida and are breeding routinely.
0: Okay, is there? Does anybody know? Do authorities know who? Who did this? uh, Any potential mass release? Because that seems like it would be criminal.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, so the hypothesized initial mass release um, was due to the destruction of holding houses in the South Florida area due to Hurricane uh, Andrew. Okay, so accidental. Accidental, yes. Uh, it was not purposeful. Um, there are, that's not necessarily 100% true for all of the different Burmese python populations in South Florida. Um, there are more than one um, uh, subpopulation where they have become established. Um, and while the Hurricane hypothesis does work for the larger subpopulation. It's unclear exactly how the other subpopulations were established.
0: All right, so this is an animal that anybody who's seen it uh, it can feel pretty alarmed. It's it's large in size, and that bigness allows this animal to prey on other native species in the Everglades. And look, the Everglades in particular is an area that— is at risk of a lot of, uh, different kind of environmental, uh, effects. The last thing it needs is, you know, invasive species gobbling up the native species, but that's not the only problem that the Burmese python presents, uh, you know, eating animals that might be food for other native animals. There's more to it than that.
1: There is. Um, we, uh, We started a study um, uh, to to look at what uh, types of um, viruses um, the pythons in the Everglades may be carrying. And we started this study uh, not just because we were like, oh, gee, it'd be interesting to see what viruses are in the snakes in the Everglades. Um, There actually was a disease outbreak um, in a population of Burmese pythons that had originated in the Everglades that were being used as a research colony to better understand um, some different aspects of the python biology um, to try and find ways to decreased their numbers in the wild. Um, And these captive snakes broke out with severe um, pneumonia, uh, severe respiratory disease. And uh, when we examined these captive snakes, the disease looked very similar to disease we see in other snakes um, caused by a very, what we now know is a very important group of viruses that are called serpentoviruses, and so snake virus. Um, And they're actually quite closely related to coronaviruses, um, which are obviously the cause of of COVID and and, and other respiratory disease in humans. Um, So we were concerned that that really... uh, that really nasty virus that had the potential to cause significant disease in snakes was also present along with the Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Um, so we started a project. This was a large project that included multiple collaborators. We, we work closely with um, United States Geological Survey, um, USDA, uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife, Colorado State, um, the Conservancy of uh, Southern Florida, um, and we sampled a lot of different snakes. Um, these snakes are actively being removed from the Everglades as part of the programs to decrease their numbers. So while they were being removed, we took swabs of their mouths um, and tested those swabs for these viruses. And we also did necropsies or autopsies on a subset of the snakes to see what was going on. Um, And we were incredibly surprised and a little bit scared that um, in almost 25% of the snakes that we tested, they had these viruses. Um, The viruses that we found in the snakes, though, um, weren't really genetically similar to the other viruses in snakes that had been identified before that caused very severe disease. Um, And in the Burmese pythons that we necropsied, they also didn't have really severe disease. Um, So it's likely that these viruses we found in the Burmese pythons um, were host adapted. And so that is when a virus and the animal or plant or insect it infects have been evolving next to each other for many, many, many years. And um, they kind of establish an equilibrium. So the, the virus can infect the animal um, and but not cause severe disease. And that allows the virus to be spread, and the virus can continue to spread in the environment. Um, but where we have seen this become an issue in many times before, uh, in terms of human and animal medicine, is when those viruses then spread to other species, and they can cause really significant disease. Um, And so we did uh, look at some of our native snakes um, down in the Everglades, and we were very happy to not find those python viruses in our native snakes.
0: Okay, well, that is reassuring. Now, we've got uh, less than two minutes now before we've got to wrap things up. But Dr. Ossoboff, I wonder if you can... You know, speculate as to what the future looks like uh, and whether or not we will be able to get a handle on this.
1: Um, yeah. I, I I think, unfortunately, for the Burmese pythons, the future is they are in the Everglades. We're not going to be able to get rid of them. Uh, and, and I think, ultimately, a new equilibrium will be established. Um, what we need to be much more vigilant about, as we've talked about in many points during this discussion, is preventing the release of animals into the wild to then have them established as invasive species so we can kind of cut these things off at the head. Um, And in cases where we can't, um, we very actively survey and identify potential infectious disease risks that could be transmitted to our native animals.
0: All right. And, you know, I, I, I would just like to say that anybody who has some kind of exotic animal that you can no longer handle anymore, please do the responsible thing. Uh, and don't just let it go. There are other options out there. And and as you say, if there's if if you see something alarming that strikes you as strange, Florida Fish and Wildlife uh, Service is is somebody who can help you, uh, or maybe reach out to a veterinarian that you can trust. And um, Dr. Osbom, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Robert Osaba from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey and her folks over there for their help with the program. And thank you all for listening to the show today. I'm really glad that you could be here for Animal Airwaves Live, and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode.